Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. News Podcast presents Brett Baer's All-Star Panel. America has got to be in the lead if you want to deal with these threats. We're going to lead. The morning is over. The shiva is done. And if you're a conservative, you should be optimistic. You know, my main priority right now is making sure that it delivers for the American people. We have to make our country great again, and I will do that. I think the president gets criticized by people all the time for the stuff he says, by people who ignore what he does. Now, Fox's chief political anchor, Brett Baer. As Russian troops close in on the Ukrainian capital city of Kyiv, President of Ukraine Volodymyr Zelensky has remained steadfast in his resolve to defend his homeland. The United States and other world leaders are striking the delicate balance of supporting Ukraine while trying to avoid an all-out conflict, a war with Russia. Earlier, President Biden announced a ban on all Russian imports of oil and gas. This as gas prices reach an all-time high with no signs of slowing down. For this and more, we'll bring in our panel. We're joined by publisher and editor-in-chief of the Cook Political Report, Amy Walter, Republican strategist and former campaign manager for Senator Scott Brown, Colin Reed, and political editor at National Journal, Josh Kraschauer. Uh, Josh, it is a big day in that the U.S. and the U.K. both saying that they will stop taking in, buying Russian crude and uh, natural gas. At the same time, Poland is saying they're ready to give MiG-29 jets, but that's not a a done deal as of yet, but big movements. Yeah, I I think it's notable that the White House is going as far as to ban any kind of Russian oil or energy or gas, when clearly the White House just a couple days ago was resistant to that possibility. They clearly were worried about the political impact of higher gas prices. But, you know, I think they also were, were sort of amazed that how quickly members of Congress in both parties, Republicans and Democrats alike, were willing to punish Russia and even uh, sustain some some pain economically back home uh, to, to get a key national security imperative uh, done. So this is going to be the big question going forward. Uh, the polls initially seem to suggest that the public may be open to seeing higher gas prices if it means the punishment of, of Russia. But... In reality, I think that could be a longer term political headwind for the White House if gas prices go above five dollars, six dollars a gallon. Uh, I'm not sure they were already facing a lot of inflationary backlash and and it's only going to get worse from here. Right. But Amy, one of the and just speaking in purely politics here, if you read between the lines of the president's speech today, he called it Putin's gas prices race, (laughs) which which erases the gas prices that were going up because of inflation prior to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Right. I mean, I guess if you are Democrats right now, you're the White House right now, and thinking about the impact, again, just not uh, of anything other than the immediate domestic political impact of 
the sanctions on the importation of oil and gas to a public that is already suffering under incredible inflationary pressure, um, it is probably more beneficial to put the blame on Putin, say this is uh, something that Democrats agreed to do, these sanctions, as a way to support um, uh, it's 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 an act of patriotism, basically wrapping the the price tag in the American flag. Now, is that going to work? Maybe in the short term, it does. I tend to agree with Josh, though, that voters looking at five dollar a gallon gas or even four dollar a gallon gas through the late summer, early fall, that's probably not going to continue. That's that's not going to be as persuasive, perhaps. Uh, as it is at this moment in time. A short-term blip, sure. Uh, things going back to normal, okay. But if this drags out, it's even harder uh, to, to see that working. At the same time, Colin, the administration is reaching out to Venezuela, to Iran, uh, through a new nuclear deal, potentially in the next few days, um, to get oil from those countries. And Republicans are banging the drums on Capitol Hill saying, wait a second, why not just ask our producers in America to increase production and to take some of the regulatory burden that you put on when you took over as president? Their response is directly that they're producing, that America's producing at a high rate and that all these oil leases um, are still out there for companies to use. Is that tenable uh, in the pitch of... American oil versus Russian, Iranian, Venezuelan oil? No, and here's why it's, it's not. I mean, first of all, it's not true. We were producing 13 million barrels of oil a day uh, in the previous administration. It's now one and a half million barrels less per day. And the bigger issue here, we're trying to blame all of these rising gas prices on someone other than your own policies, is this rise in gas prices was happening well before this recent Ukraine-Russia situation. President Biden took office, gas was two forty-two a gallon. It's now over $4 a gallon when the day started. That's an increase of 66%. And in many ways, Brett, this is what Joe Biden said he wanted to do. He campaigned as the green candidate. He promised to transition us away from traditional sources of power and onto uh, green energy. And since day one, he's been carrying out that agenda. Uh, he's been banning new oil and gas leases. He's been blocking existing ones. Uh, his, he and his administration have targeted the industry. They've accused him of price gouging. They've hauled him before Congress and sham hearings. Uh, John Kerry was wringing his hands about climate change the day that Putin launched his invasion. Meanwhile, uh, the vice president and, and, and Secretary Buttigieg are telling us all to go buy electric cars. So this was all kind of part of the plan. Uh, make gas so expensive that it forces us over to a green transition. It's just this, these world events got in the way, and now we're, we're, we're all paying the price for what happens when we sacrifice uh, our energy independence. Josh, is this an opportunity that Rahm Emanuel uh, once said, never let a crisis go to waste, that this is the pivot point for this administration to make this pitch? You heard um, the Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg out with the vice president put pitching electric cars and how this was the moment to turn electric. Um, is this, as gas prices continue to soar, what they're envisioning this turn is going to be? 
I think it actually risks being more tone deaf to where the market is and, and where, uh, you know, look, it's hard to buy a car of any kind these days because of inflation and, and the rise. Let alone an electric car. Yeah. So if you if you're Pete Buttigieg or if you're the White House, as Biden said today, and you're saying just just get an electric car, that, that does seem to be a little disconnected from the economic realities of everyday Americans. You know, look, the market's going to decide that if, if gas prices get to the point where, you know, people start to look at electric and, and, and going in that direction, that's fine. But to browbeat Americans who have a lot of other concerns and just tell them you need to get with a green program, that's never proven to be a good political message. So I, I think they need to be very careful about leaning too heavily into the, 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 the green messaging. Uh, the reality is I think a lot of people want more domestic uh, energy supply. They want to See, you know, they ultimately want lower prices, but um, the better solution is to try to get the gas prices down any way possible, not not going to the don't go to electric and go into other alternative uh, sources. You know, the polls uh, just this week, Quinnipiac, uh, Amy has it 71 percent said uh, even if it means higher gas prices that Russia oil should stop. Um, obviously, you know, the, the administration looks at something like that, looks at bipartisan support for it on Capitol Hill. But. There probably is a different poll number when you get to should the U.S. be involved, like militarily involved. Correct. Uh, and, and I think that's where the line is drawn politically, isn't it? It is. And again, these are hypotheticals. And we as just human beings are not very good at hypotheticals, right? We don't really, we can't really predict our behavior for something that hasn't yet occurred. And so it sounds very good to say, of course, I'm willing to make a short-term sacrifice to help people who are suffering. But how long is short-term? Is this a week? Is this two months? Is this for a year, right? Um, how much is it really going to cost? And is this really going to help? We have no idea how things will ultimately be resolved in this crisis. We also have no idea how much further Putin may potentially take this war, again, out to NATO countries. I think we've also seen polling and suggesting that there would be a lot of support for Americans to come in and protect our NATO allies, but in what way and for how long? And so, um, this is the other thing about this this data on, um, you know, here's where Americans stand today on this issue. I think what they're watching right now is a humanitarian crisis, watching a war unfold in real time and are understandably upset and want Americans or our, our government, American government to do more. But it's not simply that it means facing higher prices at the gas pump. We know that there's higher prices now on everything, and it is going to put even more pressure on just all kinds of goods and services. Anything that gets delivered by a truck, well, they're going to pass that cost that they're taking uh, on, on filling it up with diesel on the consumers. So it's, it goes beyond just, yeah, I'll pay an extra 10 cents a gallon, uh, 20 cents a gallon to help Ukrainians. Now it's uh, asking Americans, all right, are you willing to pay a tax on basically everything you consume and for, for, for you know, the foreseeable future? 
Right. And that's a big question mark. Colin, uh, up on Capitol Hill today, uh, there were intel chiefs, uh, the head of the DNI and also the CIA director and the FBI director. And it, what their assessment is, is pretty scary about Vladimir Putin, that they think he will double down. He will not just back off. There is not an easy off ramp for off ramp for him because he's so invested now. And that uh, the next few weeks, in the CIA director's words, are going to be ugly. And that will transmit on television screens around the world and in the U.S. And how that plays, I think, is going to be fascinating to watch. And, yeah, and the humanitarian- horrible to watch. Well, that's right, Brett. And the humanitarian crisis that's playing out on, on our TV screens is something that we haven't seen in, 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 in recent wars. And it's, it's going to test... The, the isolationist strains uh, in both the Democratic and Republican Party, frankly, uh, that have opposed all these foreign interventions. Um, I, I, I noted from that same Quinnipiac poll, uh, 56 percent of Americans are saying we're not doing enough vis a vis the handling of, of what's happening in Russia. But look, there's a reason that uh, President Trump wanted to get us out of Afghanistan and, and Joe Biden did, albeit unsuccessfully, which is that the public opinion has not been on the side of these lawmakers getting involved in foreign entanglements to date. I think the next few weeks are going to test that. And I think we're seeing through this energy crisis that's playing out uh, underneath all this, just that the geopolitical affairs, foreign affairs can't be completely divorced from our everyday life. And of course, that 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 situation, that problem gets compounded when we uh, knowingly and uh, try to make ourselves uh, more dependent on other countries for our energy sources. And it's the, the whole political debate is, is, is coming back to something that is really important to both parties. And it's gonna put, just as the, the isolationist foreign policies about to be put to a test, so too, I think, are Democrats uh, meddle to be energy independent and continue pursuing this, this green agenda they've been pushing in recent years. We'll hear what they have to say after this. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a -a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Josh, do you think that this moment in time in Ukraine dramatically or even substantively changes the midterm forecast in November? There's so many known unknowns, to borrow a phrase from Don Rumsfeld. I, I think it's unlikely to, to significantly change the, the dynamic. I think what Colin pointed out is a really important point, which is that internally within the two parties, we might see some significant change. The isolationist uh, America first uh, sentiment that Trump was so uh, outspokenly advocating for may actually lose a little bit of traction, uh, given uh, the, the the internationalist hawkishness. Uh, that's we've seen in the wake of, of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, and you know some of the the the, the left wing anti war anti American sentiment on the far ends of the Democratic Party are probably going to get a harder time getting any traction. The squad has uh, you made some noises about we shouldn't get involved, shouldn't get engaged. Um, I don't think that's going to get much support within the party either. So we may s- ironically see perhaps a little more pragmatism, a little more uh, maybe even bipartisanship, but I think fundamentally. Republicans still have a, a solid advantage, and I don't think that getting into the midterms, I don't think that's going to change dramatically. Amy, you buy that? Yeah, I mean, I think we have to always go back to the fundamentals, and and leading the fundamentals is what is the mood of, of the electorate right now. 
And it is still an electorate that feels incredibly anxious and stressed and mostly about the cost of living. And unless and until that starts to get better, noticeably better by the time we get to November, that's what people are going to be voting on. Now, the crisis in Ukraine is either going to add to this pressure or it may not have as big of an impact as we assume. We don't know. But I just keep going back to to that question, which is what sort of mood are are people uh, in? And we also know that the intensity is still very strong among Republican voters to show up and vote. Democrats right now just are not quite as engaged. And they may be. Look, by the time we get to November, Democrats will have been focused on turning them out and turning and persuading them to come out and vote. So that that disparity uh, may lessen. But I don't see something right now that's an obvious uh, generator of enthusiasm for those voters. Yeah. And finally, Colin, I mean, I've talked about it many times on this podcast, how America often operates and thinks in chapters. And, you know, one chapter is you're reading intently and everybody's focused on it. And then we close that chapter and we go on to the next one, no matter what that is. And you remember COVID? Remember when we had COVID? (laughs) I'm just kidding. I mean, we still have it and we're still dealing with it. It's still a massive issue around the world. But because of Ukraine, you know, it's less focus. That's right. And uh, COVID, I mean, that was the issue I was going to bring up, Brett. That's that's the issue that the president campaigned on and, and successfully uh, won his campaign on and, and became president on. And now it's just faded, uh, at least for now, from the from the into the background a, a bit. And he's going to I've always said he uh, these these presidencies, these they are made up of multiple acts. Uh, he's going to have to find his next one. Uh, president Biden is. But right now he's at the he's at the mercy of uh, other other events. Um, the interesting thing is, uh, President Biden throughout his term and and I believe in, in throughout both of his all of his campaigns has always kind of viewed himself as a foreign po- policy guru. Uh, he's always talked about his time uh, as the uh, Senate Foreign Relations Committee. His foreign relations experience was a big reason Barack Obama chose him as vice president in two thousand eight. Uh, so theoretically, this should be his sweet spot. This is the area that he th- he views himself as the thing that m- most interests him and, and what he views his, his his presidency about. So now he's got a chance uh, to do it. I was struck last week. It feels like a million years ago, but the State of the Union, it did feel as though there was a bit of a premature victory lap. Uh, we were talking about how how well things had gone uh, so far. I mean, that was day three or four of the of the of the invasion. We're now on day thirteen, uh, and there's no end in sight. So uh, it, it's it's going to be an interesting ride. But as as long as this is dominating the headlines, uh, there's going to be very little oxygen for him to to push a domestic agenda at the same time. Yeah, and Josh, you know about COVID, you had the CDC director come out and say, you know, it's time to put the masks away and don't shred them, put them in the drawer. We may need them again, uh, but essentially move on with life as normal, unless you're a child, six and under or five and under, where you have to still wear a mask. And some schools, you have to still wear a mask. I mean, that is like the underlying thing that not only is there success of getting past something as we are as a country, but then there's the lingering dealing with it as a parent of a school-age kid, and that that has implications. This is, on one hand, it seems like this is the month where we started to get back to normal, uh, God willing, like for the, for, for the foreseeable future, but there is this weird dynamic where 
the youngest kids who, you know, two to five preschool age were on paper the least vulnerable um, to getting COVID and, and maybe the most at risk of de developmental challenges if you wear a mask all the time at school are the ones still in many cases having to wear masks while everyone else is now gotten to take them off. Now it's a very pol. I, I know this firsthand. It's a very polarizing issue. A lot of parents have a lot of different opinions on it. But uh, there still are these COVID wars taking place uh, in many, many jurisdictions and many schools. And it's not a hundred percent going away. And there really is no leadership now. There's no. You know, you're not hearing Dr. Fauci. You're not hearing uh, the CDC director Rochelle Walensky speaking uh, as prominently. And they're getting no. You're right. Uh, 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 they're getting overshadowed by everything that's going on in, in, in the world. So, you know, there is sort of this laissez-faire approach now to COVID that is, is really going to, um, you know, dog, I think, uh, the administration, if there's anything else that comes up going forward. I mean, as of last week at a basketball game, a middle school basketball game, the kids had to still wear masks while playing the basketball game. But the refs did not. Adult men running up and down, breathing and blowing whistles. Now, I... I'm okay with all of this as a parent. I'm just noting it. But some parents next to me were really PO'd. And you just see the political implications of that, even as we as a country start to move past, hopefully in the long term, COVID. Right, Amy? Yeah. And getting past COVID is really complicated, as we know. And it's more than just about masks. The, the tail of co the long tail of COVID is um, showing up in our lives. And I'm sorry to say also my dog has decided that whatever's outside is quite interesting. Um, That's quite I'm right. sure you guys would agree. Right? Welcome um, anytime on the podcast. Um, OK, he's adorable and very fluffy. <laughs> um, so uh, but. You know, you were talking about basketball games, um, Brett. I, I just see it in uh, kids that are in my life um, and the impact that these last two years have had on their social and emotional well-being and health. And yeah. you, you can't kind of get that back. Now, I think, look, they're back at school and they are back doing things and after school events, et cetera. But this is um, it, it, this, this event that we all went through, um, especially in 2020 and, and for much of 2021, uh, is going to linger with us for a long time. So whether the actual pandemic or <laughs> another version of mm -hmm. this virus continues to spread around that's not i think the point i think it's it's more about the, the the very long impact this will have and and i don't know that we are i don't know where we are in this process of it are we halfway through do we still have a couple more years to figure it out but it has disrupted our lives in all kinds of ways some which may turn out to be good um mm -hmm. but we don't know that right now yeah, I mean, obviously, there's silver linings in the early time of right. playing, spending a lot time of with family and stuff. all that stuff. But yeah. the real stuff, the long stuff, and the implications mentally, and also, are we as a country ready to do it again? But would we do it differently? I think we would, from a policy perspective. I think long history might look back at this time and say, "What did they do? Why didn't they put the vulnerable people in the place?" You know, I, I think we would do it differently as a country. I hope we would. But 
I'm not sure we're ready to have that conversation because we're still getting ourselves out of this current conversation right. with uh, with COVID. But right now, as we said, the focus is on Ukraine and what's next. Uh, panel, thanks so much. Now for a bit of history. On March 8th, 2001, Congress passed the Economic Growth and Tax Relief Reconciliation Act of 2001. This was the first of two major Bush administration tax cuts on this day. March 8th. That'll do it for this week. You can hear more of this series at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts. Make sure to leave a rating and a review. We want to hear from you. For Amy and Josh and Colin, I'm Brett Baer. We'll see you next time. I'm Charles Payne. Listen to my Unstoppable Prosperity podcast so I can get you making money right now. Whether stocks are hitting new all-time highs or in free-fall mode, opportunities abound. So why are so many potential investors still sitting on the sidelines? In a new season of my podcast, I'm going to get you in the game. After 38 years on Wall Street, I'm ready to impart some lessons and get you invested in the greatest wealth-generating machine in history. Listen anytime, everywhere at foxbusinesspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast.